Section 20 of the History of Lady Julia Mandeville. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Lady Julia Mandeville by Francis Brooke. Section 20. Epistle George. To George Mordaunt, Esquire. I have already told you I came hither with a view of engaging Lord T.'s interest in support of those views on which all my hopes of happiness depend. The friendship he has ever professed for me has been warm as that of a father. I was continually with him at Rome, and he there pressed me to accept those services I then never expected to have occasion for. Until now, content with my situation, love first raised in me the spirit of ambition, and determined me to accept those offers. In a former letter I told you I was going to follow Lord T. into the garden, to communicate to him my purpose of pushing my fortune in the world, to which I had before given general hints, and which he seemed to approve, as a kind of spirit becoming a young man, warm with hope, and not destitute of merit. On revolving my scheme as I approached him, it appeared so romantic, so void of all rational hope, that I had not resolution to mention it, and determined at least to suspend it until better digested and more fitted to bear the cool eye of impartial reason. In these sentiments I should still have remained, had not a letter from Lady Anne Wilmot, by giving me jealousy, determined me not to defer one moment a design on which all my happiness depended. I therefore, with some hesitation this morning, opened all my heart and the real state of my circumstances to Lord T., concealing only what related to Lady Julia. He heard me with great coolness, carelessly lolling on a settee, his eyes fixed on a new Chinese summer-house opposite the window near which he sat, and made me the following answer. "'Your views, Mr. Mandeville, seem rather romantic for a man who has no party connections and so little parliamentary interest. However, you are of a good family, and there are things to be had in time, if properly recommended. Have you no friend who would mention you to the minister?' He then rang the bell hastily for his valet, and retired to dress, leaving me motionless with astonishment and indignation. We met no more until dinner, when he treated me with a distant civility, the meaning of which was easily understood. He apologised, with an air of ceremony, on his being forced to go for a fortnight to Scarborough with a party, who, being all strangers, he was afraid would not be agreeable to me. But at his return he should be glad of the honour of seeing me again. I bowed coldly, and took no other notice of what he said, than to order my chaise immediately, on which he pressed my stay to-night, but in vain. The servants leaving the room, he was a little disconcerted, but observed he was sorry for me, my case was really hard, he always thought my fortune much larger, wondered at my father's indiscretion in educating me so improperly, people ought to consider their circumstances, it was a pity I had no friend. Lord Belmont, if he pleased, but he was so absurdly fond of his independence. During his harangue I entirely recovered my presence of mind, and with an air of great ease and unconcern, told his lordship I was much obliged to him for curing me of a pursuit so improper for a man of my temper, that the liberal offers of service he had formerly made me at Rome had betrayed me into a false opinion of the friendship of great men, but that I was now convinced of what value such professions are, and that they are only made where it seems certain they will never be accepted. That it was impossible his lordship could judge properly of the conduct of a man of my father's character, that I was proud of being son to the most exalted and generous of mankind, and would not give up that honour to be first minister to the first prince on earth. 
that I never so strongly felt the value of independence as at that moment, and did not wonder at the value Lord Belmont set upon so inestimable a blessing. I came away without waiting for an answer, and stopped at an inn about ten miles off, where I am now waiting for one of my servants, whom I left behind to bring me a letter I expect to-day from Lady Anne Wilmot. And now, my dear Mordaunt, what will become of your unhappy friend? The flattering hopes I fondly entertained are dispersing like a flitting cloud. Lord T.'s behaviour has removed the veil which love had spread over the wildness of my design, and convinced me that success is impossible. Where, or to whom, shall I now apply? Lord T. was him on whose friendship I most depended, whose power to serve me was greatest, and whose professions gave me most right to expect his services. I here for ever give up all views. Can I then calmly give up the hopes of Lady Julia? I will go back, confess my passion to Lord Belmont, and throw myself on that goodness whose first delight is that of making others happy. Yet can I hope he will give his daughter, the heiress of such affluence, disinterested and noble as he is, the false maxims of the world? Mordaunt, I am born to wretchedness. What have I gained by inspiring the most angelic of women with pity? I have doomed to misery her for whose happiness I would sacrifice my life. The servant I left at Lord T.'s is this moment arrived. He has brought me a letter. I know not why, but my hand trembles. I have scarce power to break the seal. Epistle Henry To Henry Mandeville, Esquire Summon all your resolution, my dear Mr. Mandeville. Sure, my fears were prophetic. Do not be too much alarmed. Lady Julia is well. She is in tears by me. She disapproves her father's views. She begs me to assure you her heart is not less sensible than ours will be to so cruel a stroke. Begs you not to return yet to Belmont, but to depend on her affection, and leave your fate in her hands. The enclosed letters will acquaint you with what I have been for some time in apprehension of. With such a design for his daughter, why did my lord bring you to Belmont? So formed to inspire love as you both are, why did he expose you to danger it was scarce possible for you to escape? But it is now too late to wish you had never met. All my hopes are in your resolution. I dare expect nothing from Lady Julia's. Epistle the Earl to the Earl of Belmont, September the 10th My lord, your lordship's absence and the death of my mother, which renders my estate more worthy Lady Julia, has hitherto prevented my explanation of an unguarded expression which I find has had the misfortune to displease you. I am far from intending, your lordship entirely mistakes me, no man can be more sensible of the honour of your lordship's alliance, or of Lady Julia's uncommon perfections, but a light way of talking, which one naturally acquires in the world, has led me undesignedly into some appearance of disrespect to a state of the felicity of which I have not the least doubt. I flatter myself your lordship will, on cooler reflection, forgive an unguarded word, and allow me to hope for the honour of convincing you and the lady, by my future conduct, that no man has a higher idea of matrimonial happiness than, my lord, your lordship's most devoted and very obedient servant, Fonville. Epistle, Lord, to Lord Viscount Fonville. My Lord, I readily admit your Lordship's apology, as I am under no apprehension any man can intend to slight the alliance of one who has always endeavoured his character should be worthy his birth, and the rank he has the honour to hold in his country. 
as I love the plainest dealing in affairs of such consequence, I will not a moment deceive your lordship, or suffer you to engage in a pursuit, which, if I have any influence over my daughter, will be unsuccessful, not from any disesteem of your lordship, but because I have another view for her, the disappointment of which would destroy all my hopes of a happy evening of life, and embitter my last hours. I have long intended her, with her own approbation, which her filial piety gives me no room to doubt, for the son of my friend, the heir of an earldom, and of an affluent fortune, and what I much more value, of uncommon merit, and one of the first families in the kingdom. I am sure your lordship will not endeavour to oppose a design which has been long formed, is far advanced, and on which I have so much set my heart. I am, my lord, with great regard, your lordship's very obedient and devoted servant, Belmont. I have long, my dear Mr. Mandeville, suspected my lord's design in favour of Lord Melvin, of which there is not now the least doubt. Our coming away from his father's on his arrival was a circumstance which then struck me extremely. Lady Julia's stay there, on this supposition, would have been ill-suited to the delicacy of her sex and rank. Yet I am astonished my lord has not sooner told her of it, but there is no accounting for the caprice of age. How shall I tell my dear Mr. Mandeville my sentiments on this discovery? How shall I, without wounding a passion which bears no restraint, hint to him my wishes, that he would sacrifice that love which can only by its continuance make him wretched, to Lady Julia's peace of mind? That he would himself assist her to conquer an inclination which is incompatible with the views which the most indulgent of parents entertains for her happiness? Views the disappointment of which, she has declared, will embitter his last hours. Make one generous effort, my amiable friend. It is glorious to conquer where conquest is most difficult. Think of Lord Belmont's friendship, of his almost parental care of your fortune, of the pleasure with which he talks of your virtues, and it will be impossible for you to continue to oppose that design on which his hopes of a happy evening of life are founded. Would you deny a happy evening to that life to which thousands owe the felicity of theirs?' It is from you, and not Lady Julia, I expect this sacrifice. The consideration which will most strongly influence you to make it will for ever prevent her. It pains me to wound your delicacy by saying I mean the difference of your fortunes. From a romantic generosity she will think herself obliged to that perseverance which the same generosity now calls loudly on you to decline. If you have the greatness of mind to give up hopes which can never be accomplished, time and absence may assist Lady Julia's filial sweetness, and bring her to a compliance with her father's will. Believe that whilst I write my heart melts with compassion for you both, and that nothing but the tenderest friendship could have urged me to so painful a talk. I am, etc., A. Wilmot. Oh, Mordant, till now I was never truly wretched— I have not even a glimpse of hope remaining. I must give up the only wish for which life is worth my care, or embitter the last hours of the man, who with unequal generosity has pleaded my case against himself, and declined a noble acquisition of fortune, that it might give consequence, and, as he thought, happiness to me. But, Lady Julia, heaven is my witness, to make her happy, I would this moment give up all my right to her heart. I would myself lead her to the altar, though the same hand the next moment. 
Mordant, I will promise, if she requests it, to consent to her marriage, but I will not to survive it. My thoughts are all distraction. I cannot write to Lady Anne. I will write to the most lovely of women. She knows not the cruel request of her friend. Her love disdains the low consideration of wealth. Our hearts were formed for each other. She knows every sentiment of my soul. She knows that were I monarch of the world— Oh, Mordant, is it possible? Can the gentle, the indulgent Lord Belmont, but all conspires to undo me? The best, the most mild of mankind, has turned a tyrant to make me wretched. I will know from herself if she consents. I will give up my own hopes to her happiness. But let me first be convinced it is indeed her happiness, and not the prejudices of her father, to which I make so cruel a sacrifice. I have wrote to Lady Julia, and am more calm. I have mentioned Lady Anne's request. I have told her that, though without hope, if I am still blessed in her affection, I will never resign her but with life. But if she can be happy with Lord Melvin, if she asks it, she is this moment free. I have entreated her to consult her own heart without a thought of me, that I would die this moment to contribute to her peace, that the first purpose of my life is her happiness, with which my own shall never come in competition, that there is nothing I will ever refuse her but to cease to think of her with adoration, that if she wishes to marry Lord Melvin—great heaven, is it possible she can wish it?—I will return to Italy, and carry far from her a passion which can never cease but in the grave. I will wait here for an answer— and then determine where to go. End of section 20